Hey there, this is Mason Gordon, and you're listening to Soilcraft's Regenerative Agronomy Podcast, where we aspire to bring transparency to farmers through education. And now we'll head over to the studio where you'll meet the team and we'll introduce this episode's topic. Welcome to the fourth episode, uh, where today we're going to talk about the fundamentals. I'm joined here by some of our team. Ben Verblack. Trent Graybill. Ryan Grunewig. Yeah, so today we talk about fundamentals here at Soilcraft. And the way we'll do that is in five different sections. Number one, we'll talk about the five principles of regenerative agriculture. Number two, we'll talk about feeding the soil. Number three, we'll talk about beneficial microbes. Number four, earth minerals. And number five, timed foliars. Those are our five fundamentals we'll discuss today. So starting out, Denver, uh, what are the five principles of regenerative agriculture? I'm glad you asked. So, you know, it's interesting in this realm of regenerative agriculture, right? Like, what, what is regenerative agriculture exactly? And while I don't know that there's a, a hard set exact five principles, what's been generally agreed upon and talked about a lot would be one, you know, minimal soil disturbance. Second would be cover the soil. Third is living roots whenever possible. Fourth, diverse crops. And five, integrating livestock, bringing those animals back. And so I think it's important that we have a shared, right, shared set of principles that are basic enough that if we honor these principles whenever possible, you know, the outcome will be soils and ecosystems, farms, and a planet that regenerates, that gets better over time. So here at Soilcraft, you know, we say we're regenerative agronomy. So I think it's fitting we, we talk about that. Look, we dovetail off of regenerative agriculture. So these are the principles. So where does Soilcraft come in when it comes to regenerative agriculture, right? Well, I would say that we're here to help growers honor this and move towards these. But oftentimes, your systems limit you. It's challenging to always minimize soil disturbance. Maybe you're a potato grower. And just the nature of harvesting your crop, you're going to disturb soil, right? So, well, that's all right. Okay, so we know we have to live with this. Well, how do we honor it? What, what are the, the negative consequences that come with disturbing soil? Well, we know we're going to disturb, you know, fungal hyphae. We know we're going to, we're going to burn off carbon. So, okay, well, that's fine. Let's mitigate that. What are affordable ways we can add carbon back, you know, in the forms of humic acids or, or, or carbohydrate sources or, or fish? And, oh, how do we stimulate and encourage, you know, fungi to grow faster? How do we increase soil aggregation that we've lost through that? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing really good. I've got four out of the five, but I, I just, you know, because of my operation, integrating livestock is just a bear. I can't do that. Well, how do we prop that up? How do we how do we facilitate that? Well, we know livestock, you know, provide a number of things. Well, one of the biggest is these organic acids, these digestates, you know, this, this is full of enzymes and beneficial organisms, et cetera. So how can we mimic the principle that we're missing, that we're unable to honor? And so I really think that's, that's where we come in is trying to facilitate that and help you achieve that as is, but also in, in instances where you can't do that, facilitate that. So I would say that's how we help producers really succeed in, in hammering at those five principles. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. So I might, might go ahead in here. That third thing that we had down was living roots whenever possible. And I know that can be a challenge, especially in some of the conventional, you know, 
settings and irrigated crops. Part of it, I think, is we're it's not something that's been super common to put in a crop that you are not going to harvest. It's like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Why would we do that? We need something we can, you know, and I, I get that. I think that it can be done. I think it's just a matter of figuring out how to incorporate some type of a, you know, a cover crop into your cropping system, even if you're not used to doing that. It's just a management thing, figuring it out. But in the meantime, if that's not possible, then how do we mimic living roots and what a living roots do? You know, they capture sunlight and basically, you know, through photosynthesis, they produce carbohydrates through root exudates and they feed soil bacteria. And so how can we do that? Well, we can use, which we'll you know, talk about in a minute, different types of products that you can try to mimic root exudate. So that's just another key. One of the things that you can basically hack the system, so to speak, if you can't put cover crops in, well, then let's figure out how to do what cover crops do. You can't always mimic it exact, but it sure sounds like you're talking about feeding the soil. Pretty much. (laughs) You want to talk about that? (laughs) Just keep going, right? That's what you're talking about. So, so feeding the soil, you yeah. could say in a lot of ways is honoring that third principle, right? Yep. You're feeding yep. the soil, but you know, root exudates, absolutely carbohydrates, but right. There's also, there's amino acids that come out. There are some phenols, which are fats and alcohols. There's all sorts of things, right? It's not just one. It's not just, mm-hmm. you know, fructose or glucose or right. There's multiples, right? So what's that look like? Well, I think that feeding the soil, obviously comes back to the reason that we have these principles is because soil is alive. And that's something that seems like I'm young, but in my few short years here on this planet, it seems like in general, mainstream agriculture is kind of maybe disregarded. We've looked at soil as more of a medium to prop up something rather than actually being a living organism and being loaded with tons and tons of living organisms. And so if it is alive, then we need to feed it. And in nature, if we look at forests, we look at, you know, places where it just some seems to sustain itself. How does it sustain itself? Who waters it? You know, how much water does it get? Whatever it is, there's usually something covering the soil and it's growing or there's residue that's dying. There's, you know, all these different things that happen in out in nature to basically feed the soil. And so in an agricultural system, in these large, you know, monocrop systems, we tend to struggle to find ways to do that conventionally. And so that's why we're, you know, at Soilcraft, we're, how can we copy that, but make it economical and make it fit into the conventional system? And so then, you know, we do that through using, you know, fish hydrozolates and things, carbon sources like molasses and humix and fulvics and compost and all those, you know, different types of things, seaweeds and corn steep liquor and all these types of things that we know feed bacteria and fungi. There's a lot of different ways to do that, but those are just some simple, simple ways that you can incorporate those types of products into your conventional fertility programs and not necessarily spend more money. You can, some you know, a lot of these things increase nutrient use efficiency. So you can say, pull out 10% of your, you know, nitrogen inputs or whatever it is and add these things in there, add carbon and carbohydrate sources and not necessarily increase your cost, but feed your soil at the same time. And you're going to increase 
the ability of those nutrients to be used and utilized by the plants. And a diverse soil microbiome needs a diverse amount of, you know, feed or, you know, things to give it in order to keep it alive and sustainable and to feed the soil. And Denver, you say a lot that the soil eats first and it needs that diverse diet to stay alive and to, you know, keep working and create, you know, life essentially. And that diversity begins in the soil. It seems like something we're saying here is that both of these principles come back to management. It's all about management. And, you know, we work with a lot of different growers. Some are good managers and some are bad managers. And even inside of our company, some of us are good managers and some of us are bad managers. You can have the greatest tools, you can have the greatest knowledge, but if you don't have good management, none of this makes sense. There's no system or computer program that can build how to um, feed the soil biology or these principles. It comes back to a good manager. So keep talking about that. We're talking about feeding the soil. Well, I, I think something else too that many times gets, at least in my experience, it seems like there has been an, a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding of how much that living part of the soil impacts our crops and impacts our quality of crops. And when that's misunderstood, like, why do we need to feed it? You know, we feed it with our fertilizers, right? But a lot of times some of the inputs and things that we use have been using from a conventional standpoint don't contain very much carbon. And if you look at what plants need based on the, well, I think I have, I actually have a, a picture here. You guys probably won't be able to see it if you're listening to the podcast, but this is from a book that Dr. Huber was one of the authors. I can't remember, Lawrence Datenoff, maybe another one. But in the beginning of this book, it's talking about the concentrations of nutrient from an element standpoint in plant dry matter that are deemed efficient for adequate growth. And these are basically the, the levels or the numbers of atoms in a plant dry matter that are needed for growth are relative to nickel. So they're using nickel as the baseline. You know, one atom of nickel is needed in plant dry matter for a plant to function properly. And if you go all the way down to the bottom of what's needed most, hydrogen is the most. You need 60 million atoms of hydrogen. But the next one closest to it is carbon at 40 million. And then oxygen at 30 million. And nitrogen is at 1 million. So it's the fourth on the list of what plants are comprised of and what they need. And yet, so many times in agriculture, that's all we focus on is Nitrogen, you know, we focus on other things, but we focus on potassium, you know, all these other things that are way further down the list. And we kind of forget about carbon and carbon is so important. And so I think that's a, a huge key to one of the things we use to feed soils. And it's been, you know, it's because we don't understand so many times that these soils are alive and living that we don't really feed the soil. We just think about feeding the plant certain things and we miss some of the things that can feed the plant and the soil at the same time. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. And something that I find fascinating is, is the ratios that you mentioned, right? Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. And by percentage or ratios, right? What you find is, is that you see this echoed, not just in plants and what they need, but in animals and in humans. And when you see organic molecules, they're comprised of these ratios. When you see an organic protein, you'll see that that exact ratio when you see a carbohydrate, you know, C, you know, we all, the basics, C6H12O6, right? So you have twice as many hydrogen atoms as you do carbon and oxygen, 
But then when you turn that into an amino acid or a protein, you, you add a functional uh, nitrogen group onto that. But you're, you know, you're adding like one, maybe two atoms of nitrogen. And you still have the lion's share of that being hydrogen. So carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. And you, you see that in foods we consume. And so when we consume food, we consume even meat, even high density proteins like meat are still going to have this type of ratio. Sure, it's going to be higher by proportion of nitrogen. And so when we feed the soils, when we feed the soils, something like molasses, you know, that's more of a sugar, right? A carbohydrate starch. It's going to be predominantly just carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. But then when we, but they like that diverse diet, you add fish hydrolysate into there and you're going to get fats and proteins or amino acids. And so you're going to see slightly different ratios and proportions, but it seems absurd when we try to feed a crop, you know, something like just straight up, you know, UAN 32, right? Like there's no question it responds and we're giving it the nitrogen, but we're not giving it in any kind of that ratio that, that it's designed to accept and receive. It's missing. Sure, we're getting a higher concentration. And so dollar for dollar, oh yeah, we could argue that's that's the most affordable nitrogen because I get more nitrogen and and that's all I'm paying for. Well, great. But the plant can't take it in like that. It doesn't want it like that. No living organism does or, or will. It needs the carbon and the hydrogen. It needs to be complexed and put together into a form in which these organisms can take in. Mm. So that's, I know, I just feel like that's one of the biggest shifts when we're talking about feeding soil, we're talking about that. That's why carbon is so important, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's good. Let's move on to our third, and that's beneficial microbes. Denver, what's some fundamentals of using beneficial microbes? Yeah, thanks. So beneficial microbes. So, I mean, when we talk about beneficial, right, obviously we're selecting it or, or we're saying that we're talking about the beneficial as opposed to the non-beneficial mm -hmm. or the pathogenic, the, the good guys versus bad guys. And, you know, early on, you know, we can thank, you know, Lister and, and others who, who have paved the way for us in understanding microorganisms. But, you know, one of the first issues when they started that was, oh, well, we, we started seeing the bad guys and, and they kind of all got a bad rap in a lot of ways. But what we've learned, you know, as we study these farther and there were other contemporaries like uh, Chiboso who said it's not just the pathogens, so the, the microbes are bad, we need to kill them all. You know, the whole idea of sanitization, which has its place. But um, mainly in the operating room, right, or something like that. But but really, what we find is it's really that balance. Instead, it's and even to that extent, you know, pathogenic organisms are often not innately bad. You know, I think you meant that made that comment earlier, Trent. You were talking about you know a lot of these pathogenic organisms are primary degraders, mm -hmm. and so it's it's not even that they're bad. It's it, it's they tend to harm plants in at certain points. Maybe that's because when you're seeding your crop you're tucking, you know, or pinning stubble, you know, dead residue into the seed zone. And so you end up with a piece of stubble touching a seed. And so what you effectively have is you have a corpse touching a baby, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. Like, well, how could that go wrong? I, you know, well, if you think that's a good thing, we got other things to talk about, right? Like that's what's happening. So those organisms that, that can say, okay, well, this is a corpse. This is a dead piece of, of residue. My job is to break it down and make it usable for the babies, for the, for the next thing, that circle of life that we talk about, right? But what we also know is there are many organisms that tend to buffer that process, that tend to be beneficial or maybe balance it, bring it into a balance. We, I mean, it's, it's widely known that the family of bacillus bacteria tend to be very beneficial and tend to inhibit 
fungal diseases. So whether that's putting, you know, like a kind of a broad spectrum eight way bacillus blend in for a starter or as a seed treatment to just protect that baby to, to cover that seed in or surround it with beneficial bacteria, or that's putting our muscular mycorrhizal fungi and inoculating your seed or your soil because we know mycorrhizal fungi extends the network of our roots or or that's using trichoderma or azotobacter. Azotobacter are free living bacteria that fix nitrogen or rhizobium bacteria that fix nitrogen when they interface with the root of a legume. But many people would say like we just said at the start, feed the soil. Well, the organisms are there, let's just feed them, whether that's through a living root or, or maybe that's through some of the inputs we discussed. And rightly so, there are many times that's what's called for. But in my experience, I think in our experience, we're finding that that there are times when that works and it works sufficiently. But but even so, there are often times where, where we're stacking the deck in our favor at vulnerable times in our crop or just times in the year where we know diseases to be more more active, that it makes sense to, again, stack the deck in our favor and put microorganisms that tend to balance that create that balance of that teeter-totter at that time. And, and generally, you know, bacteria tend to balance fungi and fungi tend to balance bacteria. It's fascinating. And so, you know, we've even found one of the, probably the greatest successes we find is fascinating. It comes from the earthworm You're using vermicast extracts because it's such a broad spectrum microbial inoculant or we can fertigate with it. And part of the reason is because we know about rhizophagy, right? Maybe you guys want to touch on rhizophagy and that whole process of plants, right? Roots consuming bacterium, right? I don't know if you guys want, anybody want to tackle that or mention that? Okay. So it's a new one. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. But it's not just, I mean, we know there's signaling and there's interfacing, but right. Rhizophagy is actually the process of roots eating, kind of bringing in, consuming, bringing organisms into the plant. And then what happens after that, we're less clear on, but but it's absolutely fascinating. And at the least, it, it totally, for me, expands my realm of understanding. What I think I get, you know, I think there's so much more to it. There's so many interactions that are happening with well, those organisms. Well, if you think about the, you know, how small bacteria are, and for that matter, you know, viruses, all those types of things. And if a plant gets a disease, you know, blight or mildew, whatever it is, something that's super common, so many times we we think that it came from the outside when it might not have came from the outside. It could have, but more than likely it could have came from the inside. I mean, because these bacteria are in the soil, yes, they're in the air, yes, they're floating around, but they're also inside the plant in the vascular system. And if the environment is not what it should be and the plant is off from a nutritional standpoint and it's such that that there's, you know, the energy there or the food for the bacteria or the fungi to inoculate, it will. Even if the plant is technically alive, if it's unhealthy, it can infect it. And some, and I think, well, I don't think, I know that many times it comes from the inside, not just from the outside. And so these organisms are everywhere. So if we can increase the balance of those organisms, the healthy ones, then there's a good guy, bad guy, you know, relationship. And if we can stimulate and feed the good guys, there's a lot less issues we're going to have. Which is a good point. And we don't have time to cover it here, but I love it. We'll go more in depth in a later episode to discuss, you know, what makes the difference between something living and dead or is it just that clear? Is it healthy and unhealthy, mm-hmm. dead and alive? 
And what we find so much of the time, it's, it's more like Arden Anderson talks about this at length, right? There's, there's healthy, but there's also, there's disease, but then there's, there's pre-disease, you know? And so what we find, I think oftentimes in plants is, you know, the difference between a, a live plant and a dead plant is similar to a live human and a dead human. It's electrical stimulus or no electrical stimulus. But again, there's a gradient to that too. There's, you know, how much potential. And so when an organism is weak, you know, the energy, the, the frequency, uh, amperage, et cetera, all those things which are electrical, you know, they, they change. And that's often, you, you, it may be inside as you described, but then when certain things happen, now that organism has a greater propensity of, of mm-hmm. being acted upon and that pathogen becoming a pathogen because it's a degrader. So it's in there and, oh, you're alive. So it's symbiosis. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're dying or dead. Now it's my time to to eat, to be yep. a degrader, to do... Recycle. Yeah, phagy. Mm-hmm. So. I know we could talk about this for quite a long time and we might devote a whole podcast, maybe even a series of podcasts to this. But Please. for sake of time, we got to move on to the next two. We don't got much time for the last. But so the fourth... Fundamentals, earth minerals. Trent, what are earth minerals and how do we use them? So when I think about earth minerals, that's kind of a term, I would say, for a raw mineral that's not necessarily been extracted or refined into technically, typically in my experience, so many times in conventional agriculture, things are have been refined into a completely soluble form, which in some cases works, but in many cases, it's missing some of the components that make that mineral more effective or more balanced. And so, you know, for example, typically you find calcium in the earth in the many different forms, but usually it's not completely soluble. So when you're, you know, using a product like calcium ammonia nitrate or just straight calcium nitrate, yep, it's soluble, looks kind of like water, whatever you can look, it's clear. But you, you're missing the carbon aspect or you're missing the silica or you're missing the sulfur. Or you're missing all these other things that make it more effective in the plant or for the plant to utilize. And so we've been finding that these raw forms of minerals, they, they need biological digestion, obviously. Nature, nutrients need microbes to break them into smaller pieces so the plants can absorb Mineralization. Right? Mineralization. But... If you can take that mineral and you can get it into a small enough particle, you can make it even more available, which is exciting. And so that's something that um, we've been seeing really good results with is using, you know, raw calcium, different types of calcium sources, and phosphorus sources and carbon sources in micronized forms that the plants can, in some cases, actually utilize because it's a small enough particle, but in many times it is small enough for the bacteria to, they they have less work to do to make it available. And those minerals tend to be more balanced and provide sometimes more than one thing from a single product versus a single thing. You know, for example, like soft rock phosphate can provide as much, actually has in many cases more calcium than it does phosphorus. And so when you do that, you get both, but you're also getting the carbon component. Anyways, those are just and when you say that, results, you know, what kind of results? I know we've talked about that. Like, for instance, what do we see? What do you see in saps, for instance, well, for when example, we use those? I think, you know, sometimes if we're using, say, uh, a more concentrated, potent, refined form of phosphorus like phos acid, it works really well. We like it. 
You know, it, it does some amazing things, but it's not necessarily balanced. You don't necessarily find that in abundance in nature. It's usually complex with something else. So what happens when we do that is we apply, for example, Voss acid, it, it works really good. A lot of times we're buffering with other things, but by itself, it will tend to bind to calcium and different things in the soil and then become less available and or make those other minerals less available because it now bound to those versus when we use something like soft rock phosphate, it may be a slower release and not as potent when it comes to pure phosphate, but it's in a natural form. It already has that complex with calcium. And so in the soil, it's not going to, it's going to just become more available from the time you put it there, the longer it's there rather than get there and then tie up with other elements. And then you just wasted half of what you applied. So some of these raw minerals we're finding are getting healthier crops and building the soil rather than applying a soluble soluble nutrient. It's there and then it's gone with these raw earth minerals. We're able to actually, in many instances, slowly build the levels. We're also, yeah, like we said, increasing carbon capacity, hydrogen, oxygen, like with, with phos acid or things like that. We're not sure what else is coming with those or what else we're putting on the soil and the pure quality of these products with less, you know, salt byproducts, no chloride, no aluminum, things that we can find in certain humic acid sources or refining processes of these kinds of things. We don't see that in the analysis or, you know, in tissue analysis, sap analysis later down the season as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And that's primarily why we've started using more of these more organic based mm-hmm. raw earth minerals is because we don't find a bunch of other things in there that we don't want that we do find in some of the more soluble forms because many times some of these soluble nutrients that we use in our you know conventional cropping systems tend to be byproducts of other things other industries so there's salts and chlorides or aluminums or you know a whole host of different things that can be in there that we don't want for crop health it's antagonistic to healthy soil and healthy crops. And so these raw minerals, you can have some of these issues, but that's why, you know, we try to analyze everything that we use. Quality again, right? Yep. Just comes back to finding things that are clean and pure. Yeah, that's good. So let's move on to the last one. Number five, timed foliars. Ryan, you have a lot of experience with foliars. Tell us about it. So with a variety of different crops, using foliars at specific times can make you know, a big difference, a growth response, hormone response, just trying to get, you know, obviously the most out of that foliar. But if, you know, using hormones, cytokinin, oxins, gibberellic acid, trying to name a couple more, but, you know, if we're aiming for growth, we use nutrients and hormones to inhibit or create growth. Or if we're trying to tell the plant that it's time to reproduce, we'll use, you know, phosphoric acid in foliar or manganese or cytokinin, cobalt and things to increase flower production and to maintain flower production so that the plant can hold more fruit and create more fruit and just elicit that response by hitting something on the leaves, waking up the plant, telling the plant, hey, it's time to grow, it's time to reproduce, it's time to push ethylene or sugar into the fruit. And hops is a good one because we're trying to grow 18 feet vertically in six weeks and then bush up and arm out six weeks later before, you know, we harvest the fruit that is essentially creating oils in a cone. And so by, you know, 
creating growth with forms of nutrition and hormones to grow 18 feet and increase that. You know, they can grow six to 15 inches in just 24 hours, which is incredible. And if we can increase that, that is incredible as well as also with increasing the amount of cones and fruit that we are producing. And another good example is, is tree fruit production where, you know, we'll be in there one to two times a week doing a foliar spray and leading in on closer to harvest. We want to increase ethylene to increase sugars, increase color, but also not create problems by causing the fruit to drop. So we'll use, you know, nutrition like cobalt or molybdenum along with things to uh, create color and sugar to maintain good fruit hold and increase yield. And the timing of it is everything because if you're too late, you might cause issues. If you're too early, it might not be, you know, you might not have enough growth that you want before you want to introduce reproductive uh, hormones or reproductive growth. So timing is is really a lot of it. Yeah. And I would agree. I think with foliar nutrition, I think it's fairly well understood now that foliars make work. Foliars are actually effective. It's, you know, early on it was, oh, what? You know, plants have roots to get their nutrients. You, you don't absorb nutrients through leaves. That doesn't make any sense. But there's an old paper, actually. It's called H.B. Tukey to Congress. And this guy, I can't remember for sure if he was with the USDA or not, but he was a researcher of some sort. And he presented to Congress, and I believe it was in the early 80s, and was showing that, hey, this is actually a viable option to feed crops through foliar applications of nutrients. And so what they did is they took nutrients and then they basically made it radioactive with radioactive isotopes. And then they would apply the nutrients to the tree. And then you could measure or basically see where the nutrients went. And they were showing that, you know, you could apply something to this part of a tree and through radioactive isotopes, they could follow and track that nutrient. And it went all the way throughout the entire tree. And even they even found that applying nutrients to bark on a tree in a dormant season still moved through the actual plant in the xylem and in the phloem, which is incredible. And then, you know, through newer technology, plant sap analysis, we've been able to learn even more about what nutrients are more mobile that will travel throughout the plant or move from one part of the plant to the other part of the plant, depending on what it needs and which nutrients don't move, you know, very well. And so, yeah, foliars are, can be an incredible tool to manipulate if you need to certain things. But again, timing is really important because if you don't understand the plant physiology and, you know, for example, because I'm more familiar with some of the tree fruit type crops, we've found that typically their bud differentiation timeframe is in June and July. And that's when that plant is kind of deciding the bud's that are going to be fruit or flowers the whole next year later. So during that time frame, if you can do things, particularly to give the plant a reproductive energy, like you mentioned earlier, um, phosphorus, manganese, these different elements that we know are very reproductive promoting, you can increase that crop's potential a whole year later, which is incredible. And in perennial crops, you can do it and see it within weeks or days. You can see, wow, there's more flowers out there now which is a lot of fun. And would you say, Ryan, too, you were talking about, you know, what you try to do in hops. You know, I want to say that's all, right? You know, mm -hmm. that's all you wanted to do and <laughs> for many weeks. 
Right. That's kind of a, it's a hard thing. It's kind of like you put them on a leash and then when you're ready, you get them with a cattle prod. Right. And so what I've heard you guys talk about quite a bit is like the challenges to that, because when you're trying to hit them with that cattle prod, you know, nitrogen being the chief component usually, which causes vertical growth. We know that, but, but there's, there's side effects from that, right? There's a consequence for trying to, to rush that. So I've heard you talk about being able to utilize foliars, right. To, to counter some of those negative effects from that extreme growth. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, I mean, looking at it as almost sort of a trigger, like, you know, you're waking it up, telling it, I need this, I need this now, or I I'm hurt. I have this, you know, fungal pathogen on my leaf. I'm going to bring calcium to that and repair it. Like silica is a big one that we use to mobilize calcium and create, you know, tighter cell walls so that pathogens, fungal pathogens, you know, disease cannot penetrate. And for something that grows that fast, that long, um, your cell division is, you know, I'm not sure how to say 10 times as fast as a normal plant because you're growing that much faster than just a normal tree or a normal perennial crop. So the the triggering effect of it is huge. And I mean, the hop is basically a weed because it grows so fast, you can't kill it. And it's has massive roots and it's, yeah, like the, the trigger effect of moving, mobilizing, creating hormonal effects is a lot of what we try to do, especially something with that sort of a growing window and something that grows that quickly. For being a weed, those cones sure smell good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. But again, it, it seems like a lot of this comes back to management again. And um, you can have all these great tools, but if you don't have good management and a plan, they can actually work against you in a lot of ways. So that's where we'll end it today. Thank you for listening. It's been another successful podcast. If you have any questions or a topic that you'd like to hear us address, please email us at podcast at soilcraft.com. Until next time, thanks again for listening.